Welcome to The Markets, sponsored by the CME Group. I'm Steve Alexander, in for Orion Samuelson, who's traveling this week. Actually, Orion has been traveling quite a bit recently. He was at the Half Century of Progress show in Rantoul, Illinois, followed up a few days later by his visit to Decatur, Illinois, to the Farm Progress show, and the following week to the Big Sandwich Fair in Illinois, And then this week he was in Iowa at County Fair in Spencer and then to the University of Illinois for the Salute to Agriculture that is held every year. So we'll give Orion a little bit of time off to catch a breath. In the meantime, let's uh, see what's going on on Wall Street. What happened this week? The Dow Jones Industrial Average rose on Friday and that made it eight in a row. The first eight-day winning streak in more than a year. And you may ask why. Well, once again improving sentiment around the U.S.-China trade relations. It doesn't take much of a breeze, and not even a stiff breeze of uh, optimism to make the markets move when it comes to Chinese trade, and that was certainly enough to make it move on Friday. It didn't move much, though. The 30-stock index closed 37 points higher at 27,219. The S&P was down about a tenth of a percent to 3,007, and the Nasdaq ended the day down 0.2% at 8,176. Going into the day, there was some thought that the Dow and the S&P might reach record highs. The Dow was within about 180 points of its intraday record high of 27,398, and the S&P was also within striking distance of its all-time high of 3,027, and so missing that one by about 20 points. So we'll have to wait for another day, apparently. Trade bellwethers, Caterpillar and Boeing rose 1.5% and 1.1%. Those gains were slightly offset by a 1.9% drop in Apple. Apple took a hit after an analyst at Goldman Sachs decided to cut his price target on Apple to $165 per share from $187. Apple closed at just under $219. The Dow for the week was up 1.6%. For the week, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ both rose about 0.9%. And the rally also led to a big sell-off in U.S. sovereign bonds. The benchmark 10-year T-bill shot up more than 30 basis points this week, going to right around 1.89% from 1.57% earlier in the week. So I guess we don't have to worry about that uh, inverted bond curve anymore. Because right now, as of Friday, the two-year was at 1.804, the 10-year was at 1.9, and the 30-year was at 2.375. So the curve is the way it is supposed to be and not uh, inverted and indicating a possible recession. The higher rates gave banks a big boost. Bank of America climbed nearly 9% this week, while Citigroup and J.P. Morgan Chase both gained about 6%. The three banks also rose more than 1.5% each on Friday. On the data front, consumer sentiment for September came in above expectations as consumers felt better about the economy. However, worries over the trade war increased, according to that survey by the University of Michigan. Retail sales came in right about where they were supposed to, uh, reported to be a slight miss, but not alarming. Now, back to the trade war, sentiment improved after the New York Times reported on Friday that China will exempt some U.S. agricultural products, including soybeans and pork, from additional tariffs. And then on Thursday, the U.S. welcomed China's renewed purchases of America's farm goods, 
with President Trump saying it's expected that Beijing would purchase large amounts, that's in quotations, of agricultural products. Trump also said he would consider an interim trade deal with China. That was reported that he was going to consider that, and then the White House said no, and then apparently the final word is that he will consider an interim trade deal with China. Now, that news on Thursday sent the soybean market skyrocketing at the Chicago Board of Trade. And to talk about the impact of all of that on agriculture, we will bring in Max Armstrong with his special guest right after this on The Markets, sponsored by the CME Group. For more than 150 years, CME Group has been built with your confidence. Without it, we simply wouldn't be in business. Today, we continue to work on new and better ways to protect you and grow your confidence in the markets. After all, it's our vigilance that brings you the peace of mind you need today and in the future. CME Group. Advance with confidence. In the studio this weekend from Allendale's offices, Allendale Incorporated in McHenry, Illinois, northwest of Chicago, Paul Georgie. In a week with uh, some government figures, we've been stunned a couple of times this summer in government reports. Uh, were folks bracing for this one? Well, they were. They were in the kind of numb going into this thing, I would say, uh, not expecting a whole lot out of it. And uh, the government gave us just what we thought, nothing this time. Kind of a yawner, uh, didn't change very much, lowered the yields a little bit from last time. Um, although the yield uh, projections on corn were right in line with what the, what the Allendale uh, uh, farmer survey said. But, uh, you know, soybeans a little bit lower, but soybeans, we got a lot of guessing to do yet and a lot of we need a lot of time in order to get uh, the final yields on this crop, in other words. As you go down the road and you look at the soybean fields, it impresses you how far that crop has to go in many instances before it reaches maturity. Uh, there are a lot of green fields yet. There's a lot of green fields, and, you know, the days are getting shorter, and beans grow uh, basically by daylight. So you wonder how much actual production can we get out of these soybeans? What is the potential of them? And, uh, you know, we're really not going to know until the combines run. And, you know, we don't want to we don't want to put an end to this crop too early with a frost. So uh, the frost is still in my book. The frost is the biggest question we've got as far as what kind of crop we're going to have and what kind of quality we're going to have, because that to me concerns me as much as anything is the quality of this crop, because poor quality crops usually mean low prices. And uh, that is. you know, we won't get the real effect of it until maybe next year. Then the question is, can the farmer survive uh, financially? He's going to have debts to pay and loans to pay off, things like that. So there's, uh, I'm I'm very concerned for the, the farmer right now. Given the lack of maturity for this crop, do you think there are going to be some weather scares yet as we go on through the month of September into October, wondering about the possibility that, uh, you know, this crop isn't going to get finished? I think... The further we go along, the less the scare will be. Uh, in my uh, 35 years of experience in the business, it's, you know, if we had a scare in, uh, in talking about a frost coming in the middle of September and it doesn't happen, we're going to have a, a nice surge in the market uh, off of that. Now we've got the weather forecast that gives us all the way through the middle of, uh, well, the first part of October. So we're we're kind of running out of gas for a, 
uh, a big surge in price. Uh, we certainly could rally prices simply because we're oversold in the market from a technical perspective uh, and uh, things along that line that, that are other than weather that uh, weather may ignite. But um, we, we could see uh, a concern or, or something that we're also watching is we're looking at weather forecasts that are talking about wet all the way through harvest. And that's going to make it very difficult, and you lose bushels when you have uh, wet conditions during harvest. Generally, we don't get too excited about harvest delays because there's the feeling that that crop is going to get brought in anyway. Uh, but those years are not nearly as late as this one. Will the market pay more attention to the fact that uh, there's rain dropping into an area and the crop isn't getting harvested and there's the possibility of field losses. Generally, we don't leave that much out of the field, Paul. That's right. We don't, and we're very good about getting our crop harvested. we got equipment to do it with. Uh, you know, we can mud it out of the field easier than we can mud it in the field. And, uh, you know, so I, I would like to think that we could get some excitement from that. We need something more positive to talk about right now. I mean, we'd look at the crop and you say, well, it's, and farmers tell me all the time that it's just not, uh, the crop isn't there. Well, the problem is we don't have any demand. And that's the side of the equation that the, the big picture is looking at is we still have got a lot of corn. We still, in this USDA report, we got 2.1 billion bushel of corn carry out next year when at in june we were thinking we were only going to have 1.4 billion carry out which is a big difference and and we don't have the demand and uh that is uh we got problems in the ethanol industry and there's there's just if we can fix some of our demand problems now the supply all of a sudden becomes important and any change in that supply becomes a greater importance someone listening to us Maybe thinking back to how in the spring, when this crop wasn't being planted in a timely manner and the challenges that farmers were having, it looked so bleak. How could this crop have such good-looking corn yields? Now, substantially lower than a year ago, but still surprisingly good for what it's gone through. There is no doubt about it. It's a surprise. And and you have to give credit to the weather and genetics, I would think it, it certainly the uh, the credit you have to give. But the weather that we've had, it's been relatively cool in a lot of areas. Uh, we've had moisture. So uh, the crop come on very quickly. It's not been extremely hot. So, uh, you know, those are the factors that have, have really been the, uh, the supportive to growth. I've had uh, work for uh, and help out at the food pantry up here in northern Illinois and Crystal Lake once in a while. And, and we got some uh, vegetables from a, a vegetable farmer. And he was telling me, and he keeps track of the days that he puts it in and when he planted it, and days in every year. He's done it for 20 years. And this year, the the time span from the time he planted it to the time he harvested was actually less than any other year that he had, and he's getting a bountiful harvest. So I always look at that. If it's happening in one crop, it could happen in another crop, and that's uh, that's what I guess we got to be uh, aware of. Over the next 30 to 60 days, will there be much volatility in prices? Now, obviously, the wild card is what, what China might be up to. Or do you see prices just kind of plateauing here until we start to get some of the combine yield results, until we start to get a little bit into this harvest? Well, I would like to say we're going to have volatility because that's good for everybody. Uh, however, reality tells me that we're probably going to be 
uh, sideways. Since there isn't that demand that there, you were talking the about The demand earlier. isn't there. And then usually in markets like this where we've got plenty of supply, we'll get demand if the market moves lower, and then we'll move up a little bit, kind of our stair step down. And that could be our, our situation that we're facing right now, and that's the, the scary thing. It could be more of a, a downtrending uh, stair step than an uptrending stair step because any rallies, the buyer goes away, says, I know I got plenty to buy, and I'll get it when the price goes back down. And that I, and supply will have a, an impact, but I think, uh, you know, that's going to come later, in my belief anyway. I think we, we get the bearishness out of our system here. We still have got a lot of old crop corn that, I'm a, that is on the farm. And, you know, farmers, I only know a couple of farmers that don't have any corn on the farm. They're, it's moved. The rest of them all come to me and say, well, we got, or talk to my brokers and say, well, you know, we got 30,000 bushel left or we got 50,000 bushel yet. And uh, I just found 10,000 bushel. Uh, sure you did. But uh, uh, they got corn on, on the farm that they have to move. So they're going to need to get the bins empty if the crop is going to be there. Now, most of them are one of the arguments is, is that, well, we don't want to sell this cash grain because we don't know if we're going to have a crop. I understand that. That's certainly a viable argument. But so that means somewhere in here in the next couple of weeks, we may see more corn come to town. We might actually have an earlier harvest than we think because it's going to be old crop corn coming to town rather than new crop uh, because of later harvest and the bins still having grain in them. So Basis can play a role in that too, can it not? Basis is, and basis is definitely playing a role right now. We've got a, a much stronger basis than historically we have during this period of time. And I think that's something that farmers really need to keep an eye on is watching this basis and in their own area if it's uh because once the corn once we get past a certain date this the the elevators know there's grain coming they they don't need to pay up for corn anymore so uh it will uh it, the basis will fall somewhere here in the next probably two to two to six weeks the basis is suggesting somebody needs it right now there isn't, and they well, it's suggesting they need it, but on the other hand, it's suggesting that the farmer isn't selling it. And I had that uh, come up to me the other day, and the guy said, "Well, we don't have any corn because the basis is strong." That's not the case. The farmers are strongholders right now. Yeah. They're they're not selling the grain, and that uh, that I think is uh, it, it's a problem that could impact us, and it will impact the basis, which could impact the, the farmer's return by 20, 30 cents a bushel if he gets caught up on the wrong side of it. Just be alert that all of that could be coming to market at one time, you're saying. It could. Once the once we're confirmed we're going to get a crop, there's going to be a flush of grain to the market. Paul, we always appreciate the chance to talk to you. Thanks for coming in here this weekend. Thank you, Max. It's been great being here. Paul Georgie, Allendale Incorporated. Thank you, Max Armstrong. You know, Max, in his uh, younger days, uh, was often told that he reminded people of Omar Sharif. Remember Omar Sharif? He was in some big movies back in the, what, 70s, I think? Like Dr. Zhivago and Funny Girl. Well, that brings us to movies, the movie business. And this one was in that, uh, it sounds too good to be true uh, type of a deal. A company called Movie Pass which was set up to allow you to go watch as many movies as you wanted to for a set fee per month. Well, MoviePass announced on Friday that it is shutting down its discount ticketing service effective Saturday, 
the 14th. MoviePass notified subscribers that it plans to close down the service because its efforts to recapitalize MoviePass have not been successful to date. It has formed a strategic review committee made up of the company's independent directors to explore strategic and financial alternatives for the company, but basically they couldn't find anybody else who wanted to invest in that model, which was not sustainable. So, goodbye to MoviePass. You're listening to The Markets, brought to you by the CME Group. For more than 150 years, CME Group has been built with your confidence. Without it, we simply wouldn't be in business. Today, we continue to work on new and better ways to protect you and grow your confidence in the markets. After all, it's our vigilance that brings you the peace of mind you need today and in the future. CME Group. Advance with confidence. Welcome back to The Markets, sponsored by the CME Group. And it was quite a week when it comes to monetary policy. We saw the European Central Bank reduce its interest rate to negative 0.5%, and it resumed its quantitative easing to the tune of $20 billion as long as is necessary. Here in the United States, well, on Wednesday, we heard something from the president that I'm sure we have never heard before when he trashed the Fed and called Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed and other leaders of the U.S. Central Bank, boneheads. He tweeted that the Federal Reserve should get our interest rates down to zero or less, and we should then start to refinance our debt. Trump tweeted that interest cost could be brought way down, while at the same time substantially lengthening the term. We have the great currency power and the balance sheet. Well, some economists don't quite agree with the president. In fact, they say that reducing our rates to below zero would likely exhaust much of the Federal Reserve's firepower to fight a future recession at a time when the U.S. economy is still growing. So that brings us to next week when the Fed is meeting and will likely reduce interest rates a little. Let's get some expert commentary on interest rates and what the Fed may do next week from Gregory Ipp, who works for the Wall Street Journal and was interviewed by Kelly Evans of CNBC. We know Fed members tend to disagree. In the past, much of that has played out behind the scenes. This time, it's happening very publicly. At one point, just in the span of 24 hours, two members gave completely opposite views on what they should do next. Even former members have come out swinging in what were considered controversial comments. And on top of all of that, the president has lashed out against the group and Chair Powell personally, going as far as calling him a bonehead. Joining me now is Greg Ip, Chief Economics Commentator at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Greg, <laughs> as we say, unlike any situation we've seen in quite some time, how's it going to affect the outcome next week? Well, um, I think it is definitely the case that we haven't typically had to deal with Fed officials described as boneheads. That said, you know, I've been watching the Fed for quite a few years, and I've always admired their ability to kind of shut out those extraneous distractions, and I don't think next week will really be that different. Uh, you're right to say that there is a division within the committee about what they should do next, but even that is not that unusual. I've seen those kinds of divisions in the past. It's what you see sort of at uh, turning points. So my own view is that they'll probably go a quarter of a point. I think mm -hmm. Chair Powell has more or less telegraphed that fairly clearly. What I'd be watching uh, with interest will be the dots, to tell us whether there's uh, a strong sort of like consensus for going again at their meeting after that. And secondly, looking at the dissents. I mean, we had two members dissenting in favor of not cutting rates at the last meeting. Uh, that was Rosengren from Boston and George from Kansas City. 
And I would actually expect them to repeat that. Now, what would be interesting is if you might see a, a dissent from, say, uh, Jim Bullard right. of St. Louis in terms of like wanting a greater cut. But actually, it's not a bad thing if you're Jay Powell, the chair, to have people on both sides of you wanting to go in opposite directions because it makes what your policy uh, makes your policy look more reasonable. But it's interesting, Greg. I mean, you knew about the dissents in the past because you were so plugged in with these guys. But Greenspan and, and to some extent Bernanke kind of shielded uh, that disagreement from playing out in public quite so clearly. You know, you really had to kind of read between the lines to figure out what was going on. That's not the case anymore. And is that because the data has been confusing? Is that because uh, you have just different types of policymakers now from different backgrounds? I mean, why do you think that this one in particular, people have seemed almost happy to, to compete for headlines and, you know, and have dueling points of view? And look what happened at the ECB yesterday. The dissenters almost undermined the entire point of doing more quantitative easing. Uh, yeah, partly it is the times that we live in. I mean, the outlook is very uncertain. That said, we've had uncertain times in the past. Uh, and I have seen, actually, Fed officials, you know, go public with their uh, dissents. And I've seen this building for the last few years. One of the most striking things is that you see a lot more Fed officials willing to go on television shows like yours yes. and discuss their uh, point of view. Now, as a journalist, I'm all in favor of uh, government officials with great influence over our lives, like talking about it, talking to us, talking to the public, Definitely. describing what's going on in their minds. There's not anything intrinsically wrong with that. I think the bottom line is, does it get you to a better decision. If all we're hearing is the public discussion of the kind of factors that are going to the decision internally, nothing wrong with that. I think you get a better decision out of that. What do you think about the Dudley op-ed? And, and also, I can't help but wonder if, if Bullard's uh, positioning a little to catch the president's attention for maybe uh, the next you know, Fed chair appointment, something like that. So I think the Dudley op-ed really caught a lot of people off guard. It surprised a lot of people. It certainly surprised me. I mean, um, what I think is uh, almost, um, what I'm fairly confident of is that you know, uh, this former Fed official, Bill Dudley, saying that the Fed should consider politics and not cut rates will have exactly the same influence that President Trump telling them to consider politics and cut rates, which is to say zero. <laughs> these these folks, I mean, they, they focus only on unemployment and inflation. They try to shut that All stuff right. out. And even that, like we said, the picture's been murkier uh, than normal. Greg, thanks very, very much. Appreciate it. So we will find out Wednesday, one o'clock Chicago time, what the Fed is going to do. The uh, expectation, as we heard, is that the Fed is going to reduce interest rates by about a quarter of a percent. Let's take a look at what happened in some of the commodity markets. Let's begin with gold, which started out the week at 15.08 per ounce. It had been on a little bit of a run over the last couple of weeks, but throughout this week, it dropped down to 14.96. That was the close on Friday. Crude oil rose on Monday 2.7% to $58.03 a barrel, but after that it was all downhill, losing a half percent on Tuesday, 2.4% more on Wednesday, 1.2% more on Thursday, and on Friday it closed down 24 cents at $54.85 a barrel, going from 58.03 to 54.85. At the Chicago Board of Trade, it was a huge week for soybeans. Beans hit a six-week high on Friday. Friday as China's first large purchase of U.S. beans in months and easing of some duties on exports fueled hope that there's uh, some sort of a detente in the tariff war between Washington and Beijing. The presidents, Trump and Xi, played footsie ahead of the trade talks next month, but we have seen this before. 
and we'll see if it sticks this time. Corn futures also firmed as signs of a U.S.-China trade thaw sparked short covering while wheat futures ended flat. All three markets posted their strongest weekly gains since mid-summer. November beans rose three and a quarter cents to eight ninety-eight and three quarters a bushel. It was over nine dollars for much of the trading day. That's a four point eight percent weekly gain, and that's the best in about three and a half months. December corn rose a penny and a half to three sixty-eight and three quarters a bushel. That's three point seven percent for the week. And wheat dropped a quarter of a penny on Friday to four eighty-two and three quarters, but it ended the week higher by four point three percent. Switching over to the animals at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, lean hog futures climbed by an expanded daily limit on Friday as China said it would exempt American pork from additional tariffs imposed during the trade war with the U.S. Those exemptions raised hope for Chinese buying and were seen as the latest sign of easing tensions between the two countries before that round of talks begins or resumes, I suppose, uh, sometime next month. China has imposed three rounds of retaliatory tariffs on U.S. pork, including 25% increases in April and July of 2018 and a 10% bump this month, raising the total duty to 72% from 12% before the trade war. Now, China needs U.S. pork because of the African swine fever, which has cut the pig herd in China by a third since mid-2018. China is the world's top pork consumer, and without U.S. pork, it is doubtful that there's enough pork elsewhere to satisfy the need over there. So running the numbers, October lean hogs jumped $3.30 to $66.47 per hundred, and reached a one-week high. December lean hogs maxed out at $4.50 higher to a six-week high of $68.70 per hundred. February hogs also maxed out $4.50 higher. Now, you might wonder about that trading limit. It used to be $3 per day, either up or down, but on Thursday, the CME group raised it to $4.50, and we're told that that will remain in place on Monday. Cattle futures traded mixed, but seem to have bottomed out after recent declines. Futures and cash prices fell after that fire at a Tyson Foods slaughterhouse in Kansas. That happened in August, and that removed a key buyer from the market, so the prices went down. Cash cattle prices firmed up this week as the week went on, helping support the futures. Cash cattle traded in the Southern Plains for $99 a hundred compared to $100 a week ago. CME October live cattle futures ended down about 65 cents at $98.07 per hundred. October feeder cattle rose on Friday 7 cents to $134.57 per hundred. As we continue with the markets, let's switch gears to your portfolio. Are you happy with it? More to the point, are you happy with your advisor? And if you're not, how do you break up? Let's hear from Sharon Epperson, a senior personal finance correspondent for CNBC. Well, there are a lot of advisors out there, first of all. So there are plenty to choose from. Over 300,000 financial advisors in the U.S., managing nearly $20 trillion, according to Cerulli Associates. And there was a study that Ernst & Young did. It wasn't looking at whether or not because of the market action most recently people were moving, but what did they do in the last three years? And half of clients of wealth management providers decided they wanted to make a switch. And that includes with their banks or brokerages, as well as their financial 
advisors. And why they wanted to change wasn't so much their investment returns, but it was a life change. It was them changing jobs or having a baby, getting married, receiving an inheritance. These are some of the reasons why people decide that they need financial advice or they need better financial advice than what they're getting. You want to make sure the advice changes as well, that that financial advisor understands your long-term plan and how that long-term plan may have changed. Keep in mind how much technology has changed over the last 10 years. Has the financial planning firm kept up with software, kept up with statements? Are they communicating with you regularly or just now they've gotten so big you just get a newsletter? You don't right. get a phone call. Or when you do get a phone call, you're getting, they're trying to sell you something, sell you a product that they're going to then get a commission on. And that's a key factor, too. Have they explained to you the fees that you're b- being charged and have they explained how they're making money? The key that you want to have for any financial advisor is to make sure that they uphold what's called the fiduciary standard. And that means that they're putting your best interests as the clients ahead of their own, not just trying to make money off of you. All right. So there are 50 ways to leave your lover. What's the best way to get rid of your financial advisor if you think it's time for a you know, As always, you have to plan ahead. You have to make sure that you have all your documents in order, and that includes your investment documents, but also your tax returns, your insurance policies, because you want this advisor to give you a holistic view of what they're going to do for you come next if you're switching advisors. The new advisor should be able to handle all of that. You shouldn't have to be able to be handling that paperwork That's yourself. Depending on where the investments are held and depending on what the, the advisory firm, the new advisory firm's policy is, you shouldn't have to really incur any additional costs, no tax consequences. No, you shouldn't have to sell the investments. Mm-hmm. You may have to pay a small termination fee, but by and large, it should be a seamless process. Many people do it. And just make sure that you've really checked and interviewed and reviewed the new advisor to make sure this is going to be the right fit. Sharon Epperson, a senior personal finance correspondent for CNBC. Well, before we wrap up the markets for this week, let me remind you that this was recorded on Friday the 13th, and that was a great opportunity for the folks at Otis Elevator Company to to tell us that 85% of the high-rises in the world do not have a 13th floor. That's the markets brought to you by the CME Group. In for Orion Samuelson, and with big thanks to Max Armstrong, I'm Steve Alexander. Mm-hmm.